So this week is Ezekiel chapter 33, Ezekiel the Watchman, and the Art of Self-Delusion. Interesting title, eh? There's a few different topics in this chapter, and as we go through, we'll see what it's all about. So I pray, then we'll do a memory verse. Father, I pray that you will help us to understand your word, and that your Holy Spirit will reveal truth to us, and we will put what we hear into practice. And we won't be like the man who looks at his face in the mirror and then forgets what he looks like, but rather we will learn what we need to do and then by faith do it, trusting in your power to achieve what we cannot do for ourselves. So we just praise in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, yeah, Ezekiel 33, Ezekiel the Watchman and the Art of Self-Delusion. Memory verse, Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27. You ready? I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. So notice verse 27, I will put my spirit within you and cause you, not force you, not coerce you, but I will cause you to walk in my statutes. And the promise is you will keep my judgments and do them. So the Christian life is not one of self-effort, but of dependence and trusting in God's strength. So last week, we saw what happens to unbelievers when they die. It was pretty severe. They go down to the depths of the earth, to the pit, Hades, Sheol, the temporary resting place of the wicked dead. And remember that hell is actually technically the lake of fire. And that's not the same place as Sheol or Hades. It's outer darkness. It's not a part of this earth. And it exists now, and it will continue to exist once this earth is destroyed and remade. So what we learned is that the people in Sheol or Hades or the pit are not only conscious when they go down there, but they remember everything they did while they caused terror in the land of the living. That's what the phrase we kept hearing last week, terror in the land of the living. That's what they did. These nations, these people, they had their way, they had their fun while they are on the earth. They caused their terror. They had their reign of you know, doing what they wanted to do. But then they feel shame. The only thing that changes is that instead of being proud and boastful of their achievements during their short stay in the land of the living, they are now completely humiliated and ashamed of what they did. And they must bear that shame for all of eternity as they recognize how foolish it is to rebel against God and that they're going to have to give account to God for all the things that they have done. So God has just opened, figuratively opened the earth and allowed us to see what goes on when unbelievers go into the pit, you know. It's shame. Remember, believers go up, unbelievers go down. Okay, So what God is doing now is he's reminding Ezekiel of his primary role as a watchman. And a watchman is someone sent by God whose job it is to warn people that they need to repent if they're going to escape God's judgment. Now, this applied to Ezekiel on a national level. Now, we're not prophets. okay? We're not a prophet appointed by God to speak to nations. But we are ambassadors of Christ, and we do have a calling to share the gospel with those around us. 
That's our purpose in life. That's our primary function. So, um, the outline of chapter 33 is, first off, that God makes Ezekiel a watchman for the nation of Israel. God's judgment is always fair. The fall of Jerusalem, and God describes Judah's sin and why he had to discipline them. And then the last part, pretended submission and obedience, the art of self-delusion. So that's what the nation of Israel did. They deluded themselves. We'll get to that a bit later. So first of all, God makes Ezekiel a watchman for the nation of Israel, verses 1 through 11. So we'll read verses 1 through 6, and we'll break it down. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, speak to the children of your people, and say to them, When I bring the sword upon a land, and the people of the land take a man from their territory, and make him their watchman, when he sees a sword coming upon the land, if he blows a trumpet and warns the people, then whoever hears the sound of the trumpet and does not take warning. If the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be on his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet, but did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself. But he who takes warning will save his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet, and the people are not warned, and the sword comes and takes any person from among them, He is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. So if you've been around for a while, we we covered this last year in chapter 3. God is repeating this, and when God repeats stuff, we need to listen. So verse 2, it says, When I bring a sword upon a land. So what is Ezekiel watching out for? Well, God's judgment, right? Who's bringing the sword upon the land? He says, When I. Okay, God is about to judge his people because of their sin. And Ezekiel must be faithful to let them know how and why God will discipline them if they choose not to repent. And the message is always, you won't be judged if you repent. I've got a quote from David Guzik because some people take this whole watchman thing a bit too far. And instead of focusing on sin and causing people to come back into a relationship with God, they're more focused on minor doctrinal things. And so they'll cause division on you know what kind of songs you sing and what Bible version you read. And while those things are worthy of talking about, to be picky and force your opinion on people on those things is like, you know, do you really need to read the King James only, for example? Those things can be destructive. So here's a quote from David Guzik. There is always a place for those to do what Ezekiel was called to do as a watchman, to discern that God's judgment was coming soon and to warn the people. Yet many who consider themselves modern watchmen focus on the examination of supposed error more than the proclamation of God's truth. This is a distortion of Ezekiel's calling as a watchman. And that was again David Guzik. So in other words, The main function of a watchman or ambassador of Christ is to point out sin and its consequences and point people back to God so that they will repent. That's our job. If he blows the trumpet and warns the people in verse 3, the watchman of the city would be on the walls of the city or another high point on a hill somewhere where they could see the enemy army approaching. It was like the early warning system of the day. 
And when he saw the enemy approaching, he would blow a predetermined sound on the trumpet, which would warn the people of the approaching enemy and give them time to get away, to flee. Now, God's judgment or discipline only comes because of sin. So what Ezekiel was really warning them of was not that Babylon was coming, but rather they had embraced sin, and now God must discipline them. That's what the warning was. Yeah, Babylon is coming, but why? Well, you're sinning. How God was going to discipline was not the most important thing. Rather, it was a fact because of their sin, they were now under God's judgment, and they needed to be called back to repentance. Now, if they repented, they would not be judged, they would be safe. In verse 4, it says, Then whoever hears the sound of the trumpet and does not take warning, if the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. Now, put yourself in Ezekiel and Jeremiah's shoes. Most of the people that they warned did not listen. So this was God saying, Look, you're only responsible to share the message. How it's received is up to them. They'll be responsible for their own soul, for their own life. Verse 5, it says, He who takes warning will save his life. So the only way to escape God's judgment of sin is to repent and believe. Turn from sin and turn to God. And also believe that Jesus' death on the cross was a full payment for all your sins. So in the context of the passage of this chapter, it meant repenting of their sin, turning to God, and therefore avoiding the brutal Babylonian siege of Jerusalem. This is like a physical deliverance. Verse 6, if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet. Ah, this is neglect, this is gross negligence. If your job is to warn the people and you don't and they get hurt, well then it's your fault. And verses 7 through 9, this is now Ezekiel the watchman, and this is where God is saying, Ezekiel, you're the watchman. So you, son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore, you shall hear a word from my mouth and warn them for me. That's the main point here. You shall hear a word from my mouth and warn them for me. When I say to the wicked, a wicked man, you shall surely die. And you do not speak to warn the wicked from his way. That wicked man shall die in his iniquity, his sin. But his blood I will require at your hand. Nevertheless, if you warn the wicked to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, he shall die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your soul. So in verse 7 it says, I have made you watchman for the house of Israel, therefore you shall hear a word from my mouth and warn them for me. So again, this is God repeating this, reaffirming Ezekiel's role and responsibility as a watchman. He is to hear from God and tell the people. In verse 8 it says, O wicked man, you shall surely die. What's the New Testament verse that's similar to this? Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's our message. Sin will kill you. God offers eternal life. So the main difference between the watchmen described in this chapter and us as ambassadors of Christ is that Ezekiel had a greater responsibility. He was responsible to speak to nations and not just individuals. In verse 9, it says, If you warn the wicked to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, he shall die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your soul. So once a person or nation hears the message, it becomes their responsibility to respond. Again, our responsibility as an ambassador of Christ is to just share the message. How it's received 
is completely the responsibility of the receiving person. So like this brought comfort to Ezekiel and Jeremiah, it also brings comfort to us today as parents as we warn our kids, an unbelieving spouse, our unsaved family and friends. And from a Christian point of view as well, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we have to warn each other and keep each other accountable so we do not suffer unnecessarily and bring dishonor to God and his church and losing our reward. Even as Christians, we can fall into sin. So if you want to warn each other. And one of the main points is we need to speak the truth in love. If I don't say what needs to be said, then I am in some way responsible for what happens when they are punished for their sin. And, you know, in a workplace, you have a duty of care, you know, for safety, things like that. You can think of this as a spiritual duty of care, an eternal duty of care. So as a teacher, I'm liable if I know about a physical danger, but I don't tell the student and the student hurts themselves, I'm responsible. I can be prosecuted. Us, when we stand before God, we'll have to give an account at the beam of seat for the things not said and done. <laughs> it's not just the bad things we do, but sometimes the sins of omission, the things we don't do. So again, it's not going to kick you out of heaven, you're not going to lose your salvation, but there'll be less reward. So again, not speaking the truth in love is equivalent to neglect of duties or gross negligence. So we have a great responsibility. Verses 10 and 11, the message of the watchman. Therefore you, O son of man, say to the house of Israel, thus you say, if our transgressions and sins lie upon us and we pine away in them, how can we then live? Say to them, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, a house of Israel? So what's the word in the New Testament? Jesus doesn't say, turn so much, he says another word. Repent, yes. So repent, repent of your evil ways, for why should you die, a house of Israel? Now verse 10, this is an attitude that um, some people have. If our transgressions and our sins lie upon us and we pine away in them, how can we then live? So it's just a way of saying, Oh, it's all too hard. The judgment is too severe. There's no hope for me. I'm never going to be able to change anyway. I'm doomed. <laughs> so, yes, the people were deep in their sin. They were habitually unfaithful. But God always leaves room for repentance right up until the final judgment. And in the case of the people of Judah, they had up until the third and final Babylonian invasion when the city and temple were destroyed and the remaining people were taken into captivity. They had up until that time to repent and get out of Jerusalem and be safe. The reason they stayed in Jerusalem, remember, is because they liked what the false prophets were saying and they liked all the idolatry and stuff like that that was there. Verse 11, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. So God's response to the accusation in the previous verse, you know, it's too hard. We can't change. We're going to be doomed anyway. There's no hope. He says, no. He says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. And so this applies both to God's disciplining his people now and also condemning the unbelieving for eternity. It's like us disciplining our kids. No one likes to do that. 
but it must do it in other, in for them to be raised as uh, whole and mature people. So another thing here is that people say, well, God doesn't find any pleasure in judging people, so he won't do it. No. God is also, as well as being perfectly loving, he's also perfectly holy, and therefore he must judge sin, even though it brings him no pleasure. Now, turn turn from your evil ways, repent. If God finds no pleasure in the death of the wicked, then he finds much pleasure when they repent. Sounds logical? Nobody has to die. Everybody has the opportunity to repent. And in your own time, read the whole parable, but I'll just read one verse of it for now, Luke 15, 7. In the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. So when a person is born again and comes into the kingdom of God, there's a party in heaven, basically. The angels rejoice. Yep, we've got another soul with the Lord for eternity. It's awesome. So that's how God's attitude is like. When we come to him, he rejoices. Now we come to the next section. Uh, God's judgment is always fair. So remember that the people have accusations and questions, and God is going through in this chapter and answering these accusations and questions. So verses 12 through 20. The fairness of God's judgment. Therefore you, O son of man, say to the children of your people, The righteousness of the righteous man shall not deliver him in the day of his transgression or sin. As for the wickedness of the wicked, he shall not fall because of it in the day that he turns from his wickedness. Nor shall the righteous be able to live because of his righteousness in the day that he sins. When I say to the righteous that he will surely live, but he trusts in his own righteousness and commits iniquity, None of his righteous works shall be remembered, but because of the iniquity that he has committed, he shall die. Again, when I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, if he turns from his sin and does what is lawful and right, the wicked restores the pledge, gives back what he has stolen, and walks in the statutes of life without committing iniquity, he shall surely live. He shall not die. None of his sins which he has committed shall be remembered against him. He has done what is lawful and right, he shall surely live. Yet the children of your people say, The way of the Lord is not fair, but it is their way which is not fair. When the righteous turns from his righteousness and commits iniquity, he shall die because of it. But when the wicked turns from his wickedness and does what is lawful and right, he shall live because of it. Yet you say, The way of the Lord is not fair, O house of Israel. I will judge every one of you according to his own ways. So, remember the context here? The context here is physical judgment and it's the Babylonian captivity. It's not talking about people's eternal destiny. So, you know, it's talking about the righteous and, you know, becoming wicked and stuff. It's, you know, it's the choices we make in our life. These people were the children of God. These people were Israelis. They were all God's people. Not necessarily saved, but still God's people. And whether they died in the siege or didn't die in the siege, they were still an Israeli. They're still one of God's chosen nation. So, just remember that it's not talking about people's eternal destiny. Once a person is truly or generally born again, they are forever saved. Their sin has been paid for in full, and the Holy Spirit is living within them as a guarantee. 
So here are the two scenarios that this passage describes, just to simplify it. At any time, someone who had been living a righteous life could decide that they wanted to begin to listen to the false prophets, enjoy the temporary sensual pleasures associated with the worship of the idols, and also remain in Jerusalem. Now what's going to happen to them? When the Babylonians come, they're going to be judged. It didn't matter how good they were before, if they choose to follow the worldly ways and listen to the false prophets, then they will suffer the punishment when the Babylonians come. Remember the false prophets were saying that you'll be safe if you stay in Jerusalem. Ezekiel and Jeremiah were saying, "Uh uh-oh, you better get out of Jerusalem because that's where the judgment's going to happen. So the people had a choice, you see. On the other hand, someone who had been indulging in idol worship and listening to the false prophets, they might come to their senses and flee Jerusalem. They might come to understand that what Ezekiel and Jeremiah said was true regarding the Babylonian invasion and judgment, and then they would escape the coming judgment. So verse 12, it says, The righteousness of the righteous man should not deliver him in the day of his transgression. So a quote from David Guzik, God told Ezekiel to speak to another accusing objection from the people of God. This was an accusation based in fatalism, which basically said, the good are good and the bad are bad and nothing can be done about it. To answer that objection, God reminded all that every righteous man could end up with a life dominated by his transgression. His prior righteousness would not rescue him on the day of God's judgment. So, application as a Christian? I can still fall into sin, right, if I choose to. So on a practical level, this this is what it's talking about. As for the wickedness of the wicked, he shall not fall because of it in the day that he turns from his wickedness. So just like the righteous person had the free choice to begin living a sinful life, so the wicked person has a free choice to begin living a righteous life and therefore escape the coming judgment. So we all have free choice choose or not to choose eternal life. That's the application for us today. When I say to the righteous that he shall surely live, but he trusts in his own righteousness. This is important in verse 13. Self-righteousness, it's a dangerous trap to fall into. Really dangerous. Self-righteousness is thinking that we are good enough to earn God's blessing and approval, but nothing can be further from the truth. And we're going to see later that The self-righteous person is actually a self-deceived person. And I would go to far as say self-deluded and insane. I'll explain that later on. We must never forget just how sinful our sinful nature really is because when we do, we also have forgotten just how gracious and kind God is to unconditionally forgive and accept us as sinners. Verse 15, if the wicked restores a pledge, gives back what he has stolen, and this is what repentance looks like on the outside. A change of heart leading to a change of behavior. Instead of stealing, they give instead. Now, verses 17 through 20, God's response, Israel was unfair, not God. Yet the children of your people say, the way of the Lord is not fair, but it is their way which is not fair. That's what God says. When the righteous turns from his righteousness and commits iniquity, he shall die because of it. But when the wicked turns from his wickedness and does what is lawful and right, he shall live because of it. Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not fair. O house of Israel, I will judge every one of you according to his own ways. So, verse 17, the way of the Lord is not fair. 
This is yet another false accusation against God. The Lord is not fair. Most of us, when we are facing the discipline of God, we're saying, why is this happening to me? You know, It's not fair. <laughs> Verse 17, but it is their way which is not fair. This is God's answer to the false accusation. And it's amazing how our sinful nature is so illogical and twisted. When we give in to sin, our minds become dark and foolish, and we can't see that it is actually fair. I will judge every one of you according to his own ways. And this is why God's ways are fair. It's based on the choices of the individual. God gives everyone free choice to choose for themselves. And now we come to the third part, verses 21-22. It's the fall of Jerusalem. So i just read those two verses. And it came to pass in the twelfth year of our captivity, in the tenth month, on the fifth day of the month, that one who had escaped from Jerusalem came to me and said, The city has been captured. Now the hand of the Lord had been upon me the evening before the man came who had escaped, and he had opened my mouth. So when he came to me in the morning, my mouth was opened, and I was no longer mute. Now, what we need to do, I'm just going to go down a little bit. It says Ezekiel 24, verses 26 and 27. I'm just going to read that. This is what God had done prior, like years ago. This is what God had said years ago. And on that day, a survivor from Jerusalem will come to you in Babylon and tell you what has happened. And when he arrives, your voice will suddenly return so you can talk to him and you will be a symbol for these people. Then they will know that I am the Lord. So what's happened is, from that time in chapter 24, Ezekiel has not been able to talk. He's been able to speak when God gave him a message to speak, but apart from that, he was mute. And so God had predicted that when this messenger came from Jerusalem to announce the fall of Jerusalem, Ezekiel would get his voice back to speak not just prophetic messages, but normal speech. And so this is exactly what happened. This is the fulfillment of that prophecy. In the twelfth year of our captivity, so this is about seven years, it's been seven years since Ezekiel has been made mute by God. And the city has been captured. So, again, years before this was predicted. Again, I just want to remind you of the whole context here. The false prophets were saying that Jerusalem would be safe because a temple was there. They had the temple, they had their religion. And Ezekiel and Jeremiah were saying, no, the temple's not going to save you. Your religion is not going to save you. And then, of course, we know what happened. It's already happened now. The temple and the city were destroyed by the Babylonians. So at this time, many people would have come to realize that, you know, the false prophets really were false prophets. And the true prophets were Ezekiel and Jeremiah. Because what they said came to pass. Part 4, God describes Judah's sin and why he had to discipline them in verses 23 through 29. So 23 and 24 first is the few remaining survivors boast against God. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, they who inhabit those ruins in the land of Israel are saying, Abraham was only one and he inherited the land. But we are many, and the land has been given to us as a possession. Now, 
God had promised that the land would remain desolate, like barren, no people, for 70 years. Yeah, And these people are saying, no, we're going to settle in, you know, because Nebuchadnezzar had left a few people there, just a few poor people. And these people were still sinners. They're still very sinful. They're still worshipping idols. They're still looking for Egypt for their strength, for power. And in their pride, after going through this siege and this judgment, they're still thinking, ah, we don't need God. We can do this. I mean, they just don't learn. And they actually, if you read in Jeremiah chapters 40 through 44, it records a sad story of these people who simply could not trust and obey God, and they did end up going to Egypt. And then when Egypt was defeated, they got killed, just like God said. And verses 25 and 26 is God's reply to the remaining survivors. Therefore say to them, Thus says the Lord God, You eat meat with blood. You lift up your eyes toward your idols and shed blood. Should you then possess the land? You rely on your sword, you commit abominations, and you defile one another's wives. Should you then possess the land? Do you really think that God is going to allow people like this to rebuild the nation of Israel? Do you think the nation would survive in a foundation of this kind of immorality? (laughs) Of course not. But no repentance, no change. You've been through a year and a half siege. You've seen everything that the prophets had said come to pass, and they still continue in their sin. It's it's just, for me, it's um, unbelievable. But this is what we see around us today. People who are being convicted of their sin, but choosing to continue in their sin and continuing to live a life separated from God. What would happen is in 70 years' time, the people would come back and they would then have soft hearts. God would have done a work in them and they would have come back and they would rebuild the temple and they would truly worship God. Verse 27 through 29, it's God's judgment on the remaining survivors. Say thus to them, thus says the Lord God, As I live, surely those who are in the ruins shall fall by the sword, and the one who is in the open field I will give to the beast to be devoured, and those who are in the strongholds and caves shall die of the pestilence. For I will make the land most desolate, her arrogant strength shall cease, and the mountains of Israel shall be so desolate that no one will pass through. Then they shall know that I am the Lord when I have made the land most desolate because of their all their abominations which they have committed. I mean, they've just seen the nation go into captivity. Why? Because of sin. These gross sins, the violence, the idol worship and stuff. What are they continuing to do? These same gross sins. And they're not expecting the same punishment? It doesn't make sense, does it? So, God is saying, the same sin gets the same punishment. Really simple. And the fifth part, pretended submission and obedience, the art of self-delusion. These last three verses are very interesting. And I've called this the foolishness of hearing but not doing. As for you, son of man, the children of your people are talking about you beside the walls and in the doors of the houses. And they speak to one another, everyone saying to his brother, please come and hear what the word is that comes from the Lord. So you see what's happening here? All the people, were, all the nations, people in the nation of Israel were speaking to one another. Oh, what did Ezekiel say? Did you hear what Ezekiel said? So they come to you as people do, 
they sit before you as my people. Does God consider them his people? Like walking with him? No, they're pretending to be his people. And they hear your words, but they do not do them. For with their mouth they show much love, but their hearts pursue their own gain. For with their mouth they show much love, but their hearts pursue their own gain. Indeed, you are to them as a very lovely song of one who has a pleasant voice and can play well on an instrument. For they hear your words, but they do not do them. And when this comes to pass, surely it will come, then they will know that a prophet has been among them. And this was literally fulfilled when that small remnant was left in Israel. Jeremiah chapters 43-44 records it. They go to Jeremiah and say, Oh, Jeremiah, we know you're a prophet, and you know, would you please inquire of God? Tell us, should we stay in the land of Israel or go down to Egypt? And in their hearts, what have they already decided to do? Go to Egypt. They wanted God to agree with their plan. And so God did speak to Jeremiah, and God told Jeremiah, these people are not sincere. They're going to do what they want anyway, but you tell them what my plan is for them, what my will is for them. Stay here and I'll look after you. Guess what? Of course not. They got really angry with Jeremiah, accused him of being a traitor, accused him of lots of stuff, and then they went down to Egypt. And we don't know much about what happened to Jeremiah, except that tradition says he was sawn in two. So it's not safe being a prophet of God. You tell the truth, and what happens? You get killed. Again, that's still happening all around the world. So, verse 30. The children of your people are talking about you, saying to his brother, please come and hear what is the word that comes from the Lord. So, it's encouraging in the sense that at least he knew his message was out there, even if they weren't submitting, repenting, and obeying. They hear your words, but they do not do them. Verse 31. In other words, they are giving lip service to God's message through Ezekiel. They say, yes, yes, but do, no, no. So lip service. Yeah, I agree with that. That's great. I love that. And unfortunately, there's a lot of Christians like that. You know, yeah, it's great. I believe that doctrine. Yeah, I think it's the right thing to do. But then you see they're not living that way. With their mouth, they show much love, but their hearts pursue their own gain. So, you know, for example, what good does it do to a person to agree with a pastor who faithfully proclaims God's word, telling him, oh, that was a great message, if that person is not going to put it into practice? So, Knowing what is true and doing what is true are two different things. And the bottom line is that the people at that time were still self-seeking, living for themselves, and had no interest in the honor and glory of God. They liked to be religious and to participate in the religious rituals, but the heart was not in it. The heart was only for their own gain. Verse 32 is interesting. You are to them as a very lovely song of one who has a pleasant voice, and can play well on an instrument. <laughs> so why do we listen to popular music? It's entertaining, isn't it? Yeah. So these wicked people, they found Ezekiel entertaining. I wonder what he's going to say now. I wonder what parable he's going to come up with. It's just a facade. And, you know, in the church today's application, it's sad when the heart is so disconnected from spiritual reality that church attendance becomes an external facade. 
Smile and pretend everything's okay. Pretend to be spiritual. Pretend to be interested in the word. But really, there's a false, ulterior or hidden motive for attending church. Now, common ulterior motives for attending church that I've noticed over my life include being accepted by a group of people or wanting friendship, seeking a relationship you know, with some of the opposite sex, financial incentives, and gaining access to various church programs. So, you know, unfortunately, you know, youth groups and things like that and churches can become a place where people go to try and find a boyfriend or girlfriend. And we must be careful because I know a couple of ladies who have been fooled by these guys. They come in, pretend to be a Christian, play Christian, then they get married and actually I'm not really a Christian. So they're there to be entertained. They're there with an ulterior motive. Be careful. Not everyone in church, I hope I'm not speaking about people on here, but you know, especially in bigger churches, not everyone there is going to be there with the right motive. Not everyone there is going to be a true Christian. So what's the first and most important reason we should be going to church? Well, it's to worship God and honour him by seeking to love him more and submitting to the truth of the word of God. One of the things that we need to remember is that our motive can change in an instant. So this is not, I'm really good and you're really not. This is like, as believers, our motive can change. We need to guard our hearts, right? My affections can be stolen by anything or anyone. So, like this week, I might be fine. I might hear with the right motive, but during the week, I started thinking about something else, and when I come to church, my heart's not in it. I'm focused on this other thing. So when we come in to church, I'd encourage you to, why am I here? Am I here solely because I love the Lord and I'm seeking to grow my relationship with Him? Or am I here for any other reason, including just to look spiritual and impress others? And if I realize that my motive is wrong, well, it's easy. We just repent. Sorry, Lord, I had the wrong motive. Please forgive me. Come back to the truth. Simple as that. You don't have to stay home. Just come. Realize that you got the wrong motive and continue on. Yeah, as easy as that. God's forgiveness is instant. So, It's a warning that we can have the wrong motive when we come to church. Verse 33, Then they will know that a prophet has been among them. So as time went by, more and more of Ezekiel's prophecies were coming to pass. So even if they still refused to submit to God's word, they would still have to concede that Ezekiel was a true prophet of God. Now, an application, there's two applications to finish off today. Dealing with sin on a personal or church level. So, applying this to the church. In verse 3 it says, if he blows the trumpet and warns the people. So as ambassadors of Christ, we are to warn each other and to warn those outside the church, right? Nobody likes to be disturbed or roused from their comfortable complacency, right? Their sin makes them feel good. It satisfies the sinful desires and cravings of their sinful nature. But the pricking of the conscience brings pain. But it's a good pain. So what would happen you know, if you're home and you put your hand on the gas and there was no nerves in your hand? You're sitting there and you're thinking, something smells. I wonder what it is, you know? 
And then, you know, what's left is just a bit of a charred stump, you know. You can't do anything about it. It's chop it off. God gives us nerves for our protection, yeah? So you start saying, oh, oh, I don't want to touch that. That'll hurt me, yeah? So our conscience is like a spiritual nerve. As we come close to sin, it activates and it tells us we're about to get burned because sin always hurts us in the end, right? It's fun at the start, but it always hurts in the end. It'll always lead to death. So as believers, we are always either growing closer to God or further from God. I'm getting softer or I'm getting harder in my heart. My conscience is getting more sensitive or less sensitive. If I choose not to repent, then I'm searing my conscience, I'm hardening my conscience. So when we don't repent, when we continue in a sin, it becomes easier to do that sin, right? Because what we're doing is we're destroying that nerve. We're searing our conscience like, you know, like searing a, sealing a stake, you know. It doesn't mean that sin is not going to hurt us any worse than what it was before, you know. It's still going to hurt us the same amount. So, yeah, be careful. Don't harden your heart. Don't get to that place where it becomes easy to sin because you're going to get hurt. Even though you won't feel it, like you won't feel the warning and it's easy to sin, you'll still suffer because of that sin. Now, the Word of God is the answer. Our choices are based on two things. We need to be in the Word and we need to do the Word. And Hebrews says in chapter 4 verse 2 that if the Word is not mixed with faith, it will not profit us. It won't do us any good. And the key phrase here is knowing and believing are two different things. So remember that. Knowing and believing are two different things. Now, on a different level now, I'm not talking about believers. I'm talking about unbelievers in the church. Okay, Jesus himself tells us that there will be many who claim to be Christians, but who are not Christians. They are false converts. They have an ulterior motive, and it's not to please God, but rather themselves. So these people have never been saved. These people are in the church, but not of the church. Yeah. And 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 2 says this. Now the Holy Spirit tells us clearly that in the last times, some will turn away from the true faith. They will follow deceptive spirits and teachings that come from demons. These people are hypocrites and liars, and their consciences are dead. So how can these people, like these false teachers and false prophets who are you know, causing all these people to mess up their lives. How can they do this? Well, their consciences are dead. They don't care. They have no care in the world. They just do what they want and they really don't feel it. Their consciences are dead. Now, Jesus said in Matthew 7, verses 21 to 27, Not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. On judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and performed many miracles in your name. But I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws. And then he followed it up with this parable. 
Anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise, like a person who builds a house on solid rock. Though the rain comes in torrents and the floodwaters rise and the winds beat against the house, it won't collapse because it is built on bedrock. But anyone who hears my teaching and doesn't obey it is foolish, like a person who builds a house on sand. When the rains and floods come and the winds beat against that house, it will collapse with a mighty crash. So what's he talking about here in context? The crash is when their facade of fake spirituality is washed away when they stand before God and their unregenerate or sinful or unforgiven state is revealed. So there's a good reason for us to share the gospel with Christians, with people who call themselves Christians. Find out what they believe. Find out if their faith is based on what the Bible says or it's based on another gospel. Have they really repented? Because you might save someone from going to hell who thinks they're a Christian. Now, the final application. What is your motive? And I've called this a parable of the three thieving daughters. I don't have three daughters. It's nothing to do with my daughters. Okay? I just had to choose something. So, imagine that you have three daughters and all of them have a problem with stealing. Then, after being caught and disciplined, they stop stealing. Obviously, you would be happy that they're no longer stealing. However, when you ask them why they stopped stealing, they give you three different answers. Your elder says, I only stopped because I didn't want to get into trouble again. I didn't want to lose any more pocket money. Your middle daughter says, I only stopped because I saw how sad it made you and mum. I stopped out of love and respect for you. The youngest daughter says, I was convicted in my heart when I read in the Bible, do not steal. Then I prayed to God for forgiveness and repented of my sin. Three different answers. The same change, but three different motivations, right? Or really two. So who do you think had the right motive? Let's check their motivation, right? The eldest daughter was purely selfish. Her motive was purely selfish. She only stopped because of how it affected her, her external circumstances. So do you think her heart had actually changed? No. Do you think that she had genuinely repented of her stealing? No, she still wanted to do it. Do you think that if there were no longer consequences for stealing, that she would go back to stealing? Absolutely. Is this an external, that is the heart not changed, or internal, where the heart is changed, motivation? What do you think? It's external, isn't it? Yeah? So the middle daughter. The middle daughter's heart was slightly softer than the elder daughter, but there was still no real change in her attitude towards stealing. Yes, her relationship with her parents was more important than her stealing, but the point is that she still loved stealing. Her motivation for stopping stealing was external, in her case, to please people and to stay in relationship with them. And people will use this relationship thing as a reason to compromise. I see it with parents and kids, especially older kids who are, you know, I want to stay in a relationship with them. Hang on a sec. You know, you're doing this, it's not quite right, but just so you don't offend that person so you can stay in a relationship with them. So, but in this case, do you think her heart had changed? Well, no, it hasn't really. She still wants to steal. Do you think that she had genuinely repented of her stealing? No, she hasn't. Do you think that if her parents were no longer around that she would go back to stealing? Most likely. Is this an external 
or internal motivation. It's external. It's an external relationship, yeah? Now, the younger daughter was different. There were no external factors, no external circumstances or the influence of other people. But rather, it was the Spirit of God convicting her, and she willingly submitted to God, recognized that her desire to still was wrong, and repented. She had a change of heart which resulted in a change of behavior. And this is the definition of true repentance. The change in behavior must result from a change of heart and not some other external motivation. Trying to be good, you know, trying to impress someone, trying to maintain a relationship, trying to avoid consequences. She made the decision that it is more important to please God than to please herself or others. She had come to that place where she said to God, not my will but yours be done. She had put to death that sinful nature desire to steal. And she has died to self. That's what that means. Because she had genuinely humbled herself, she was able to come back into a relationship with God. And therefore, as she spent time with God, God transformed or changed her heart to be like him. So out of those three daughters, which one was actually back in a relationship with God? Only the youngest. The other two were still out of relationship. They had not repented. They'd all stopped stealing, but only one had true repentance. So Psalm 24, verses 3 to 6, it says, Who may climb the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Only those whose hands and hearts are pure who do not worship idols and never tell lies. They will receive the Lord's blessing and have a right relationship with God, their Saviour. Such people may seek you and worship you, worship in your presence, O God of Jacob. So, it's hands and heart must be pure. It's not just stopping the behaviour. You need to actually get rid of the desire to sin. You need to say, God, what I'm doing is wrong. I don't like who I am. Would you please change me? Change my desires. Take this away from me. Second Timothy 2.22 Run from anything that stimulates youthful lust. Instead, pursue righteous living, faithfulness, love and peace. Enjoy the companionship of those who call upon the Lord with pure hearts. Again, if you don't have a pure heart, then you can't have that true fellowship and companionship with other believers. Matthew 5.8 Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Again, only the pure in heart. We need to repent. Genuinely repent. And Romans 12, 1-3. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. So I'm reading this passage because it mirrors verses 33-33. They're coming, or they don't have the right heart. They're faking it. So there's a couple of things here which will help us to not be like that. So, the first word in bold there is reasonable, in verse 1. And the Greek is logikos. And it means logical, genuine, true. And it's translated as of the word in 1 Peter 2.2, where it says, desire the pure milk of the word. So, 
Reasonable service is a life of worship according to God's word. So we must be submitted to God's word. We can't just do what we want and what we think God wants. We must be submitted to what he says. Now the other word I want to draw your attention to is soberly. The word sophronio. And as guys, we studied this in our men's study. It means reasonable, sensible, keep one's head, be of sound mind, serious, to reason correctly, to think straight, to be sane. Okay, to think sanely, to think correctly, to think reasonably, sensibly, yeah? Be of sound mind. So we need to think of ourselves in this way. So to not think soberly of myself to not measure myself against God's standard of truth and holiness found in the Word of God is actually insanity. It's the opposite of sophronia. It's not being sane, it's being insane. Again, if I'm not evaluating myself soberly, then I'm insane spiritually. So what is an insane person? What does an insane person do? What are they characterized by? Well, they are not in reality. They have a false view of reality, right? And because of that, they lack self-control and they can hurt people. I want to apply this to believers. When I don't have an accurate view of who I am, I become proud. I'm disconnected from the Word of God. I'm not measuring myself by the Word of God. I'm measuring myself by myself or by other people or by some other standard. Guess what? My view of myself is different to who I really am. The Bible tells me who I am, my sinful nature and my new nature, but if I'm measuring myself by myself and thinking that I'm okay without God, I'm really, you know, in this definition, I'm insane. I have a different view of reality to what is real. And what happens? I hurt people. So, it's easy to justify myself and to make myself look good in my own eyes. However, this is pure foolishness, insanity. If I measure, again, myself by myself or others, I will always come out looking good. But if I measure myself by the Word of God, submitting myself to all of its truth, then I will have a sober, sensible, accurate, and sane view of myself. God's Word is the best and only reality check. If you want to know who you are, if you want to know how you work, read the Bible. It's God's instruction manual for life. So, after the painful process of repentance and change, it's worth it because there's a greater joy of a deeper walk with God. So, James 4, 1-10. I'm going to finish with these verses. What is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they all come from the evil desires at war within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it. So you fight and wage war to take it away from them. Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. And even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You only want what will give you pleasure. You adulterers, don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again. If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. Don't, do you think that the scriptures have no meaning? They say that God is passionate, that the spirit he has placed within us should be faithful to him. And he gives grace 
generously. As the scriptures say, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come close to God, and he will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up in honour. Father, we do pray that our motives will be pure. Lord, as believers, we know that our affections can be stolen by other things, other people, other desires, you know, worldly things, temporary things, money, and different things that you want to do, sports, hobbies. Lord, we just pray that you will help us to keep you first, to keep you as Lord of our lives, that we will put you first, and that our motive for serving you will be genuine, our motive for friendship with other people will be genuine. We'll be genuine, sane people with a correct view of ourselves, a real view of ourselves that corresponds to God's reality. God, you know us better than anyone else because you made us. Help us to submit to your word and to accept its truth. Lord, we know that we're dirty, rotten sinners. but Lord, when we're saved, you give us a brand new nature, a brand new heart, but we've still got the old nature in us and we're still capable of doing some really bad stuff. And we're still capable of being controlled by that sinful nature. Help us to recognize when that's happening. And even when we're not doing the wrong thing, we might be thinking the wrong thing and having the wrong attitude or motivation. So help us to be aware of this in Jesus' name. Amen.